I ask you about those tattoos? What's the symbol? It's for all the people I've killed. Alex, I'm just gonna do a quick perimeter sweep. To the monsters. Where are the monsters? I guess. Where did you hear that? It just came into my head. Welcome to Station Eleven, the podcast, the show that dives deep into the HBO Max limited series Station Eleven. Every episode, we'll be joined by a member of the cast or crew of the show and find out not only their approach to the characters and stories, but we'll also reveal special behind the scenes insights into production and the process. I'm Patrick Somerville, creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Station Eleven. And I'm Angelica Jade Bastian. I'm a writer and pop culture critic for New York Magazine site Vulture. Patrick and I are going to sit down with the many collaborators and artists from the TV series and talk about storylines, themes, and characters. We're also going to talk about what it's like to tell a story about a pandemic while living in an actual pandemic. Quite a thing. Today, we're joined by Jeremy Podeswa. You've seen Jeremy's work on shows like Six Feet Under, Boardwalk Empire, The Newsroom, and a little show called Game of Thrones, to name a few. He's an incredibly gifted director and executive producer, but we want to talk to Jeremy specifically about directing episode two of Station Eleven. We could not ignore the the weird convergence of reality and art of what we were making. It was, it was so parallel to what we were experiencing. But at the same time, being able to explore that, you know, creatively together helped us get through the pandemic. So, Patrick, why don't we get into a little recap of this episode? It's super fascinating, partially because we get a firm window into the world 20 years after the pandemic. And we learn that Kirsten is a part of this traveling symphony that performs Shakespeare plays in different towns and they're a true beautiful family, but they deal with some disruption when a stranger crosses their path, which leads to Kirsten deciding to stab a motherfucker. It gets a little stabby when she sits down to talk to her friend David at the end, who's not her friend at all. Yep. But it's dangerous in year 20. It's real dangerous out there, I think. And I think actually that's a big part of our story. How do we make it beautiful and dangerous at the same time? So I have to ask, because I think one thing that's really going to capture viewers is everything about the Traveling Symphony. Could you talk a little bit about what the ethos of the Traveling Symphony is? Because it feels both beautifully familial, but also pretty queer in my mind. I think it is. They don't self-identify with the language of before in the same way that, that we think about it. But I think the Traveling Symphony is a group of people who are working artists who don't feel obligated or beholden to many of the categories of the before or the after because they're artists and they're making a thing together. And I think a lot of the wonderful things that we know from the arts, like an openness about being able to be who you are and a non-judgmental attitude about identity, go right along with the Traveling Symphony. But a huge part of this show is about people making things together. And when you have something bigger that you believe in and you're making something together with others who are as passionate as you are, I think it becomes less relevant to care about what someone's doing with with their identity or with their lives or or saying who they are. This was the best way and the most consistent throughout the whole show way of showing survival's insufficient. 
and even making a family is insufficient because you can end up with a militia, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the first scene of the episode is about Kirsten finding the people who are going to save her and make her and be her long-term solution. There's a lot of questions there. Where's Jeevan? But I think it was important to start the story of the Traveling Symphony in year 20 with the story of a little girl connecting with the conductor in a dangerous face-off that ended safely because someone offered water and put down her gun. Just because I can't see you doesn't mean I can't kill you. What's your... What's your name? My name's Sarah. I played music before. What about you? I was a Shakespearean actor. Yeah, and I think, I don't know if everybody feels the same way who's watching this, but can I be a part of the Traveling Symphony? Because that is kind of like (laughs) my dream life, for real, for real. I have always wanted a commune that's super queer and we just create art together and raise each other's kids and just live in beautiful harmony. I want the Traveling Symphony to exist and to be a part of it. I do too. I mean, and making the show, it kind of felt like we were in it a bit. But I think like in your question, Angelica, there's something about the show that's really important, which is, first of all, yes, you're in. You can join (laughs) the Traveling Symphony. Absolutely. But there's a fantasy and a wish fulfillment to the show even though it's a show where something really terrible happens. And we knew that episode two was a pairing to episode one. And what we were going to owe was a lot of joy, a lot of fun, a lot of togetherness, and a lot of attunement. It's not just you're together with a bunch of people so you're safer. It's that people see you inside that symphony, and that's safe. You know, that's the problem with being on the road alone isn't that someone's going to shoot you with a crossbow. No one knows you. I always think that's the dangerous thing. And so that's a group of 24 people who love each other and take care of each other. They fight, though. They do fight. Yeah, definitely. It's not always harmony. That's life. Yeah, they bitch. They get mad. They repair. But they're making a big thing. And I think that was like making the show, too. Like, there's conflict along the way. But if everyone's coming from a place of, like, we love this show and we love each other and we want to keep each other safe, you get through it. Through this familial, beautiful, queer dynamic, we get to learn a lot about who Kirsten is 20 years later. Who is she? Yeah. Tell me who she is, Angelica. What do you think? For me, Kirsten is just one of the most dynamic characters I've seen in a while, especially because she's someone who kind of shows, in my mind, what gender can be when we let go of certain ideas about what a woman should do, should look like, should act. Because, yeah, she's very artistic and feminine in that way and protective of those she loves. But again, she can also stab somebody and (laughs) throw a knife, totally fight for her life if she has to. And I love seeing that duality in her and seeing Mackenzie Davis get to play it so beautifully. Yeah. And let me just throw more on there. Little moments I love in this episode. She can have a a pretty cold-hearted fight with with a very dear friend at a moment when a friend doesn't need you to be having your business, be in your feelings around her her birth time. And it's not Kirsten at her best there, but then she can go right into a supportive, totally caring piece of advice for the new member of the Traveling Symphony who's terrified about going on stage. I love that moment with Dan. It can't go on. How am I supposed to play Gertrude? I'm not a mom. 
My mom's gone. Okay, have you ever heard of Arthur Leander? The Orion soldier? Yeah, yes. So he gave me my first acting lesson. Ready? It's not about you. That's it. It works. <laughs> you put all your focus on me, and it'll free you up. I promise. Good? Yeah. That's big magic. She's sort of giving advice to herself, too, but what really hurts is losing someone for Kirsten. That was a big deal in this episode to start to get to know her. Yeah, definitely. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the stranger who crosses their path, just so the audience has an idea of just how creepy this dude is. Stranger danger. And his <laughs> his name, if you didn't hear it on the dock, is David. Uh, he seems to be confused about the math of childhood and the age of his young partner, Cody. Um, but he's telling a story that Kirsten isn't buying. I'm not sure I can raise Cody right. You know, out here without a mom. <laughs> Is he like 17 or 18? He's pretty much raised. Also, how old are you? That's what we're feeling when he first comes along. And then at the end of the episode, he, he shows his hand. We don't know why yet, but he says, we're joining. If you think back to episode one, this, this episode kind of fits. What do you do when you meet a stranger who needs help? You can say, come on, let's go. I can't leave you here. Or you can say, like, your story is super weird. There's a lot of things not adding up. And then draw your weapon. But it's always the same before and after. You know, how do you deal with strangers? I think that question is true on both sides. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm kind of the drawing the weapon kind of bitch, but I have a feeling Jeremy may take a different approach. (laughs) (laughs) So, y'all, I am very excited to introduce our guest this week, Jeremy Podeswa. Among his many, many impressive credits, Jeremy is a director and executive producer on Station Eleven. Today, we're going to get into the episode he directed, which is episode 102, A Hawk from a Handsaw. That's one of three episodes Jeremy directed, technically, even though Jeremy was there on the ground with us in Canada the whole way through and a lot longer before that as well, um, and helps us oversee the series-wide story and the episodic storytelling as a a role we desperately needed because he's organized and I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I try. We we couldn't have made Station Eleven without him. Uh, That's that's just a straight-up truth. Thanks, Patrick. I'm happy to be here. And thanks for those kind words. I was going through your credits and I saw you directed an episode of Rome, which I, like a very old HBO show (laughs) that... Ended unceremoniously, but I really loved. So I had to highlight that because that's some dope shit right there. Rome. Oh, thank you. You know, when HBO be hidden, it be hidden. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of HBO be hidden, Six Feet Under. And then uh, Game of Thrones is a big one you may have heard of, too. That show. Quite a few others, Jeremy. We'll let (laughs) you uh, speak to those. Carnival, Bardwalk Empire. (gasps) Oh, wait. You directed on Carnival, too? Yes. Yes. I did quite a few of those. Oh, my God. I, (laughs) like, love that show. I watched it when it was airing. Oh, no wonder I really loved your direction on this episode. We were vibing because of that. Because you know what? I think I've just learned. Jeremy, he got some taste as a director. Look (laughs) at him. Just firing like that. I can't wait to kind of get into, like, your process as a director and what attracts you to a project. So why don't we kind of start there? Like, what specifically attracted you to Station Eleven? 
Well, there's many things that attract me to a project. You know, I guess it really starts with the creator. Um, in this case, Patrick. Hi. Hi. <laughs> but, you know, it's as a director, you're always looking to work with people who have a really strong point of view and a strong creative identity and a, and a strong position. That really gives you something to hang on to as a director. But for me, the collaboration is what it's all about and being able to collaborate with somebody who is an original thinker, a very powerful creative thinker who has something on his mind or her mind. That's really what it's about. So with Station Eleven, I'm to me, I didn't know Patrick before, but I knew some of his work. But when I read the first episode of Station Eleven, for me, it was like a no-brainer. It was, I got so excited reading it because it was clearly the work of somebody who had something to say about human beings and their place in the world. It had something to say about artistic process. And it had such a strong point of view and such a clear voice. And Patrick really, really has that. I felt from reading that script that there was a, a beautiful human being behind this and a really interesting artist. And that got me really, really excited. I'm blushing. That's I'm so blushing sweet. right now. Yeah, It's true. Jeremy, actually, we did have coffee once before we started talking about Station Eleven oh, you're about right. a year we did. early. And I was we did. 35 minutes late for coffee. <laughs> Damn. It's the latest I've ever been for a meeting or a general or anything in Hollywood. And Jeremy, I was texting with him. I had his number and he was like, really? No worries at all. And I was like, I'm so sorry. And he was like, it's all good. And years later, uh, on sets, <laughs> the same dynamic, in fact, would be created when I would be like, I accidentally sent four versions of the monologue to Danielle. <laughs> she, she just practiced all of them. And he's like, it's okay, Patrick, we got it. No worries. We're going to get it under control. That's why we're such a good team. It like works. Yin yang. Yep. That balance, that balance, that's really interesting to hear. You know, I think one thing people have in mind with television a lot these days is that the showrunner is the end all be all. And I mean, in some ways they are. But what I love hearing just about this is like how important the dynamic with the director is to making this show what we're seeing in episode two. My God, Jeremy, please go forever. <laughs> Well, you know, episode two is a really interesting episode in that it really mutated quite a lot. Patrick reacts to to what he's seeing and, and reacts to what the show is becoming in its own way. Like a, a show kind of takes on a life of its own in a certain way once you start shooting it and once the actors start bringing their thing and once it starts coming to life, you know, through the work of the production designer and the costume designer, everybody and the cinematographer. It's like it suddenly it becomes the thing that it was meant to be, but you don't always know exactly what that is until it's happening. And Patrick, I think, is probably one of the most sort of agile creators that I've worked with in terms of responding to those things. And... Episode two, even though it's the second episode of the series, was not the second episode that we shot. In fact, it was the last episode that we shot. Yeah. And so, and there were many reasons for that, but largely it had to do with the weather and wanting to have the most summery look for episode two. In the end, it ended up being an incredible creative plus because there was the entire series to look at at that point and understand what episode two really wanted to be. And it's carrying a certain amount of weight. It's establishing year 20. It's establishing Kirsten as an adult, this whole world of the traveling symphony. But aside from doing all those things, there's a great deal of malleability within that story that is being told and how the story is being told. One of the things that was evolving as the show was being made was really how the past and present were going to bounce off of each other, how things were going to be integrated, what that sort of stylistic language was, and also narratively what that language was all about. It's not a straight linear story that we're telling. And so 
because of that, there's a lot of subjectivity, a lot of play that's possible within those time frames and the different story strands that were that are being told through the whole thing. So it was the episode that I think we were the most flexible around and the most exploratory in a way. And I think doing it at the end gave us a certain amount of confidence in the process to be able to do that. It was safe to high-wire it a bit with that episode because the cast so deeply knew who they were by then. And I think watching Mackenzie's performance in the episode, for me, her confidence, her incredibly sharp focus of, of the many facets of Kirsten's character and her the way she demonstrates so many looks of Kirsten in the in the moments between words and the reactions in her frustrated stopping of herself and restarting of herself her vigilance on the docks i think mackenzie was just absolutely on fire by the time we were doing this and we knew we needed to shoot a couple of days in the apartment that was going to be interspersed throughout 102 telling the story of kirsten's text message ultimately and her connection to those brothers And we had a story to tell there that was a small one, but a powerful one. And then what we also knew is we had to get Hamlet going and not terrify our audience away. But (laughs) the hardest to me about 102 was Stranger Danger. The presence of David in the story was a way to show how the Traveling Symphony has to react to strangers. We see Dan come, we know he's safe. We see David come, we're not so sure he's safe. And I think we're with Kirsten right there. We always knew she was going to clock David. But we didn't know how far she was going to go. And Jeremy, in our conversations, I guess this is a question for you. There was a lot of flux with this script, but Jeremy is very good at sort of coming back to you and saying, what is my episodic story that I'm telling? Get the world building out of here. Get the season arc. Like, what story are we telling here in this episode of television? And I would always go back to a stranger comes along. Kirsten doesn't like what she sees. And she goes real far in protecting the traveling symphony. And however we changed around that from there, it always felt like we had the episode. I want to know if Jeremy agrees with that at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do agree with that. And, and added to that, I think that's sort of like the narrative stories that we're telling. And then there's the understory we're telling about Kirsten and what, it, what all these flashbacks and present day story are telling us about who she is as a human being and what she's had to deal with to get here. I was wondering for you, Jeremy, as a director, how do you create an environment where actors like Mackenzie Davis can do this sort of vulnerable, dynamic, complicated work that they do? I always say about directing actors, it's like, you know, 80% of it is casting. And I think, you know, Mackenzie is just one of those great actors. Like there are many times, particularly in this episode where I thought she could be a silent movie actress. Like there's something about her that is so compellingly watchable. You can read things into her eyes and into her face that are that are very complex, and but it's all there. You totally know what, what's happening inside her head. That's a gift that not a lot of actors have. But I think beyond that, once you're getting to the specifics of scenes, because she's also an incredibly intelligent actor, there's much discussion about character and about the scenes and about the arc of her role and all those things. So she has a very, you know, intellectual approach to what she's doing, but then she lets that go and then she just acts. Yeah. And then on the day when you're, when 
were working together. It's really just giving her the space to do what she naturally does. There's a great deal of love and affection on this show among everybody. And I think for an actor, that's the best thing. They feel just supported and they feel taken care of and they feel like they can do what they need to do and they can take risks and they can try things and they're never going to get shot down or never going to be dissuaded from going somewhere they want to go. And I think with Mackenzie, some an actor like Mackenzie, you just let them you know, move. And then it's really a a very specific note kind of thing that happens. Like, why don't we try this? Or what about this? And what do you think about that? And that was really interesting, but what about a little more of that? And, and you start to shape it and, and find the the particular moment. Can you talk to me a little bit about your conversations with Mackenzie as a way to kind of get into where Kirsten is in this episode and what we're supposed to take away from her place in life 20 years after this cataclysmic event? Well, I think we we find Kirsten at a kind of a crossroads in this episode. And she's, you know, she's been with the symphony now for quite a few years, but she's starting to question certain things and also having to react to certain things. Her best friend is thinking about leaving the symphony. I don't know, Patrick, what are the other changes that she's going through right now? There's a new guy who shows up out of nowhere who's triggering somehow for her. And something feels off, you know? Like, your game is just off. Something is hiccuping inside the system. And that's, to me, the story, too, is cool because we're with her. She doesn't know what's misfiring quite emotionally, but something is building in her. And that is what expresses itself on stage, I think, ultimately. Yeah, and I think there are also two other little things. One has to do with Alex, her close friend, who's a post-pan. The only post-pan in the the troupe. So a post-pan, in our show, a post-pan is anyone born after the collapse. So that means anyone who's under 20 years old is a post-pan. Alex is our first example of a post-pan in the show. And she's the only member of the troupe who's under 20. Yeah. And and what goes along with being a post-pan is not having lived through this horrible trauma. So everybody who's lived through the pandemic has lost everybody in their lives. And so they there's a certain kind of psychology that goes along with that. The post-pans are not burdened with that because they were, they grew up in a different time and the, the, they haven't, they're not remembering a lost world. The only world they know is the one they're living in. So Alex is one of those characters, but what uh, Kirsten observes is that Alex has this kind of like attraction to this stranger who Kirsten is suspicious of. And so there's a little bit of like losing a grip on somebody that she cares about. And then on top of that, we should say that there's also these kind of like weird little things that David brings that are hints towards Kirsten's own personal past. To the monsters, we're the monsters, I guess. Where did you hear that? It just came into my head. To the monsters, we're the monsters. To the monsters, we're the monsters, which is from the book. He shouldn't know that phrase. There's that, and there's her finding those little twigs, which are connected to her tattoo. And it's like these weird synchronicity things are also pushing her off her game a little bit and making her wonder what's going on. Is there some sort of cosmic thing happening? So all these things are kind of like bringing her to a point where when she performs on stage, she has this, I don't know, how would you describe this mini breakdown that she has on stage or a kind of revelation? or uh, controlled, A controlled emotional collapse. Uh, or some somehow kind of hidden from the audience, but not from those who know her. There's a big thing in the show about how people deal with their past and past trauma in particular. And you get a sense here that there's a trauma from her past that she hasn't really fully assimilated into her life, that she hasn't fully dealt with. And now because of all these other things that are kind of like triggering her, 
on stage, she's having that moment now where she's finally having to deal with things that she's buried and that have been traumatic for her. Definitely. So I want to dig into something that we refer to here as the moment of magic that happens in each episode. Make uh, magic every time, Angelica. Make (laughs) magic every time. We're going to do it right now, Jeremy. You ready? I'm ready. (laughs) So for episode two, it's unsurprisingly, the play the Traveling Symphony puts on for the residents of St. Deborah by the Water. And I'm curious to hear your perspective, Jeremy, on what was the most important feeling you wanted to convey in this scene for audiences? I wanted there to be a sense of simple magic about it. I saw a lot of theater when I was a kid, and that sense of awe that I had at the theater was different than in movies because there's something live happening in front of you. And when there's a theatrical effect that you don't expect or that looks amazing, it's like, holy shit, I just saw that in real time. This real thing happened that it was so incredible. And just thinking about how we could use those very basically primitive theatrical effects in a way that felt really magical. So that was really important to me to to create that sense of a, a childlike wonder in the theater. Mm. Well, the, the childlike part of that feels relevant to kind of the other side of the magic in this moment, which is a kind of time travel, I think, happening for Kirsten on stage. She's having an emotional experience connecting her and year 20 to a story we started telling in episode one and young Kirsten in that apartment. And on stage, they're fusing. And I think it's it's cool to point out for our listeners, Jeremy shot days one and two in Canada. Those two days were the days of Frank... Jeevan and Kirsten, you know, making the hot chocolate, sitting, watching TV, and Kirsten alone in a room and ultimately knocking on the door and Kirsten coming out. Those were our first two days of shooting in Canada. And then a whole five months later, Mackenzie's standing on stage in the summertime, and uh, you were sort of the one holding all the knowledge of, of the situation. How much did she know about what what's happening in the moment and what you guys would decide to put in there. Did she have an idea plot wise or just an emotional sense? It was scripted. No, it was scripted. Yeah, that was scripted. Okay. Yeah. That was one thing that we really did know actually mm-hmm. um, how that was going to play out. I mean, of course there was some play with it in the cutting room, but basically, yes, we knew that we were intercutting her finding out about her parents' death as a child and her on stage remembering that moment. In her past, as she works through a a, a very difficult monologue, um, and and is still doing her job, you know she doesn't fail at her job. Kirsten, it is. I know not seems. Kirsten, come on. <coughs> Kirsten, <coughs> together with all moods, forms, shapes of grief that can denote me truly. And I should say also, it's not incidental that, you know, in Hamlet, Hamlet is dealing with the loss of his father. And that's really what that play's about. And she is now processing the death of her own parents as a child and how she learned of that. Oh, yes. Levels to this shit, I guess, is what we're learning. (laughs) Lots of levels to this shit. Um, We're obviously kind of nudging at what I call the elephant in the room with this, with doing this podcast, which is we're doing a podcast on a show that is about a pandemic while we're actually living through an ongoing, terrible, never-ending, hellish pandemic, which, of course, makes me wonder for you as a director, what was it like directing this cast as 
they are also going through a pandemic. Well, it was really complicated. You know, at the beginning, there was so much about how do we even make a show in a pandemic? Like we were among the first to kind of go back into production and you want yourself to be safe. You want all the people you work with to be safe. And actors really need to feel safe to create. We have COVID teams who are there and things are being monitored and things are being kept very safe. And we're all being separated from each other. Yes. But <laughs> again, the things that keep us safe are also the things that make the work hard. Yeah. So, you know, normally on a weekend, I would hang out with the actors and we would have lunches and we would talk and get to know each other in that way. And But we couldn't do that on this show because we, when we weren't working together, we weren't really meant to be socializing at all. You know, everybody was in their little bubbles doing things. And that was very, very difficult, actually. They were having a different experience than us. I've been thinking about this, Jeremy. We could see their faces and they couldn't see ours. And there's something safe when two people can see each other's faces. You know, one of the great things is that Mackenzie started this thing on set, like Show Your Face Friday, which was where we would all be in a big circle and and outside this is summertime and this is also outside vaccines existed by now too we were all very careful about it she would ask somebody to just like unmask so we could see their face because one thing that became very sort of amazing to me and and not in a great way was that i really didn't know what the people i worked with looked like yeah Mm -hmm. i never saw them without their mask you know and that's such a loss and when Mackenzie did this and asked people to reveal themselves to the crew safely. It was like, it was so great. It was like, it was this kind of like unburdening. It was like a lifting of something where it's like, oh my God, that's you. I see you. (laughs) And it's like, Mm. how amazing to see that you have this beautiful face and that great smile. And it's like, I I can't explain. It was very moving actually for everybody when that would happen. So your question, I would also say like, one of the things that made it good, made it okay, was that working on a project that we all cared about helped us get through the pandemic. I mean, the, the, we could not ignore the the weird convergence of reality and art of what we were making. It was, it was so parallel to what we were experiencing. But at the same time, being able to explore that, you know, creatively, that we were making this beautiful thing together. In a shitty get- time. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Just to make a, make a beautiful thing in a hard time felt good. Yeah. And in a time when before this, we were all like in our rooms you know, being miserable. Helen Huang, our costume designer, texted the other day and she had watched this show and she used the phrase, this show was made with love. Yeah. This actually brings me to something that I was very excited to get into with you, Jeremy. We have seen so much post-apocalyptic films and television shows. And what really struck me watching this episode was the warmth of the lighting especially when they're by fires um, or even it's dawn and, and it's there's a clarity to it and a warmth and an intimacy that I think is sometimes lacking from post-apocalyptic media. I was wondering if you could kind of get into your own perspective on the visual landscape of the show and how you want it to maybe branch out from things we typically expect for this kind of story. Yeah, that was very, very conscious. And it was something that we had discussed about you know, all of us, Patrick, the production designer, cinematographers, we discussed this at great length before we started shooting. We we always felt we were like the opposite of the road or, <laughs> or any of those kind of dystopian, you know, futuristic things. And we very much were thinking about, you know, what's lost and what's gained in this post-pandemic world, right? And it's not a, a balance that goes more towards loss than it does towards gain. It's like, yes, many things were lost, but 
what's the good side of no internet, no constant streaming television, you know, getting back to nature. And there's a lot of good side to that, actually. One one thousandth of the world population still exists. So there's an abundance of resources. And I think it's important also, this is 20 years after the pandemic and not like the year after. Now people are like, okay, this is the new normal. This is our lives. And we're living in a different relationship to nature and a different relationship to the land. And there's less of us. And so each person is, is really important in a different way. And you don't take people for granted and relationships are super meaningful. And it was a different way of thinking about this world. I really love the idea that when the traveling symphony comes to town, that's the only good thing you're going to see in a year. So you watch in a different way when you go, I think. It matters in a different way. And I think we forget how important stories are because we got so many of them right now. There's something about the Traveling Symphony's story. They come to town and the kids are running and they don't even get it, but they get the feelings. There's something elitist about Shakespeare that's not elitist anymore in, in Station Eleven. And, and I like that a lot. Shakespeare people! Welcome back to St. Deborah by the Water. Is Kirsten here? You all really liked Romeo and Juliet last year, huh? One question I want, I definitely want to ask while we have you, Jeremy, when it comes to not just post-apocalyptic media, to be honest, but I think a lot of media right now, there's a lot of missteps when it comes to female characters who are complicated and kind of rough around the edges. Sometimes it dovetails into a masculinization of them and they're so hard edged that their femininity is like gone. And that feels very much written for dudes and by dudes. But what's really great about Kirsten in this episode is just how dynamic she is. So yeah, she can totally cut a bitch and stab a bitch at the end, but she's also very caring and open. Can you talk about making sure to balance those different sides of Kirsten and like what you had to keep in mind to kind of just make sure that she was as dynamic a shape as possible? I think that's a great question. And I'm really glad you brought that up because that, that was something that was really so important to Mackenzie coming into this show. And she always maintained from the very beginning, and I know she had many discussions with Patrick about this from the very outset, was that she did not want to be like a superhero, right? She didn't want to be like this action figure, you know, going around stabbing people. And, you know, like she has knives. Yes, she protects herself. Yes. She protects other people, but it's like she always was very conscious of wanting to be multidimensional and not this sort of, as you say, that kind of male fantasy figure. And, you know, Mackenzie herself is a really interesting mix of things. You know, she's a very multidimensional human being and she wanted Kirsten to be that too. And, you know, I think Patrick can speak to how much was tailored around Mackenzie herself in the writing or how much was already built into that character. But that was you know, so much the intention going in that she would be all those things. And then I think when it came down to like costuming her and that all those things were always constantly in play in terms of like not losing her femininity, having her express herself artistically through the way she dresses, still being able to be athletic and do the things that she needs to do. And but you know, be be all of those things in a way that would appear contradictory, but in fact isn't. It just gives her complexity. This was a point of emphasis from the first time Hero and I talked to Mackenzie about the role. We were not interested in moments of violence. We're not interested in in how amazing her tactical knife skills are. We want those pieces for her character. We want it to be real, 
but the show's not about violence. The show is about connecting and the show is about art and the show is about surviving and then going beyond surviving too. So she needed, I think, to have those elements. And as was true in the book, everybody had their scars and their damage and their marks of survival, but the show's about shedding them. No one was interested in the tank top, military boots, cropped hair, masculinized female lead of the show. We just weren't interested. And so we had a good partner in Mackenzie because neither was she. <laughs> and and I think to Jeremy's point, there are so many more interesting things to do anyways. You know, watch how she's vigilant on the dock, but open, but wry, but protective, but investigative. You know, like the, all those things she's playing are not about being a superhero. They're about being skilled. You know, she's a skilled actor. She's a skilled protector of her family, but she is not a caricature at all. And it wouldn't have fit the show anyway. So thank God for Mackenzie. Thank God for Mackenzie Davis, the subtitle of this podcast. (laughs) Station 11, the podcast. Thank God for (laughs) Mackenzie Davis. So, you know, watching this show for me has really brought up a lot of baggage, really, about humanity's relationship to technology and what would happen if we lost all of that. It's kind of crazy to imagine because our lives are now so entrenched with everything from our phones to the internet, air travel, all these things that rely on technology really shape our lives and not only our lives, but really our understanding of who we are as people. But this tech exists because there are people behind the machines working it. If the people go, the technology goes. What are your thoughts, Jeremy, on this notion and just humanity's relationship with technology and how did that maybe influence certain things for you as a director? I am very conflicted about this subject. You know, like I remember the days before cell phones when I had to make a phone call and you have to find a quarter and find a pay phone and try to reach somebody and you probably couldn't reach them because they had to be home. And like, I don't miss that. But I also thought a lot about when we were doing the show, when the Eastern Seaboard grid went down for a couple of days and I was in Toronto at the time and I'm Canadian. And so from, from New York to Toronto, basically everything went out. And it didn't come back right away. And it had far-reaching impacts. It was like, you know, you couldn't use an ATM machine. Streetcars in Toronto couldn't go because they're electric. So they were just stopped in the middle of the road. And the streetlights weren't working. But what happened was, instead of everybody being inside watching TV or watching their computers or their devices, all the houses were dark except for candles. And people came out onto their front porches and on their front lawns. Everybody was in the street. Everybody. And then suddenly, and people were pulling out guitars and they were like playing music. And it was like, I'm not making this up. It sounds like crazily idyllic, but it was, it was kind of amazing. I I don't, I didn't want it to go on forever, but I wanted it to go on for like a week, maybe like, because how great would that be? Like for a week, if everything just stopped and we were just living, you know, there are many stories later of like babies being conceived in those 36 hours and things like that. I think it's true actually, because there was a sort of magical feeling about it. But I thought about that a lot when we were making this show because that feeling of like letting it all go, like all that stuff we think we need and all that stuff that seems to make our life easier. And what if it just was gone, right? So I don't know, that informed this whole thing for me a lot and made me think it's not necessarily pure dystopia. It's actually many, many great things about it. I think in the dialectic of the show, Jeremy just gave great voice to the the good side of that stuff going away. But I I will only say Kirsten and Jeevan wouldn't have survived without a cell phone. 
And that's what got them to safety. But the internet was a gift for us in the pandemic. So it saved us too. I, I always think I'm I'm completely jammed on this subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every time I'm out in the good, I go to the bad. And, but we need that stuff too. We just got to run it better, I think. We'll see if that ever happens. Right. Uh, but we're all out of time. And I just want to thank Jeremy so much for being so open with your answers, for coming on. This has been a really exciting conversation. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. I I love the questions you're asking. And thank you. I echo what Angelica said, and I'll also add what I said at the beginning again. We could not have made Station Eleven without Jeremy. That is the truth. So thank you. Thank you. We want to say thank you very much to Jeremy Pedeswa, our guest today on the second episode of Station Eleven, the podcast. Angelica, what did you think of that conversation? Oh, God, that was so much fun. You know, sometimes talking with directors about their craft can lead to murky answers. (laughs) But he has a lucidity and a directness that I really loved. And I was really into little moments behind the scenes that just sounded like everybody was really vibing and just creating good art together. There was a lot of love on that set. And we're going to get a chance on this podcast and a lot of the future episodes to talk to the people who brought the show to life. There are production designer, our art department, the other directors, and, and I think you'll get different takes on the same kind of ideas that Jeremy started laying out for us. I'm super excited to hear that. Station Eleven, the podcast, is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio and hosted by me, Patrick Somerville, and Angelica Jade Bastian. Our executive producer is Molly Sosha, with special thanks to Ethan Fixell. Our engineer extraordinaire is James Foster. This episode was written and researched by Kate Voss. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to rate and review Station Eleven, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast for free so you don't miss an episode. You can catch up on the latest episodes of Station Eleven on HBO Max.